Good afternoon. I hope you enjoyed your lunch. My name is Juan Carlos Hidalgo. I'm a policy analyst at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at Cato. In the previous panel, we heard uh, a very interesting discussion about what exactly we understand by austerity, whether what kind of austerity has been implemented so far in the different European countries, and whether this is the right answer for a crisis like the one facing Europe today. Fortunately, we have cases around the world of countries that face similar fiscal crisis and dealt with them successfully. Our speakers on this panel we go into some depth on the experiences of Ireland, New Zealand, Canada, and Estonia. What exactly happened in these countries that led them to trouble in the first place, and how did they manage to get out of it? Was it just a matter of slashing spending? Did they actually cut taxes in the middle of a fiscal crisis, which is the opposite of what is taking place in most of Europe? Were there other reforms involved in labor markets and competition? And just as important, are these case studies relevant for the Eurozone crisis today? After all, the turmoil in the in, in Euro's currency zone is far more complex, involving numerous diverse countries with their own internal shortcomings and rigidities that must be dealt with both at the national and supranational level, and with all the problems that entails in terms of sovereignty and national rivalries and the effort of the European Union to promote greater internet integration. So we'll hear about this uh, now in this panel. We'll also hear about the case of Germany and how that country views the European debt crisis in light of its own reforms implemented earlier last decade. So we'll start with uh, Peter Koppel. He's a prominent specialist in Estonia for local and global trends and financial markets. He has presented his views on several occasions for the local business elite. He's a frequent visitor in local parliamentary commissions, and he's a known columnist. In his daily work, he's responsible for managing investment portfolios for private wealth management clients. Since 1998, he has been working for different financial institutions involved in trading, analysis, and asset management. Please help me welcome Peter Koppel. It is, of course, an honor to stand here in front of you to discuss the subject I'm going to discuss right now. Of course, it's a little bit uh, difficult for me because uh, the previous presenter was also Estonian. And uh, if you have two Estonians uh, speaking back to back, then you are going to have some overlapping. But I hope that uh, is not of a big of a problem because I already got some feedback from the audience that these things might be good to hear even twice. I actually look at maybe at the situation from a more uh, uh, private sector point of view and uh, therefore I'm a little bit different for, from our uh, Minister of Economic uh, Affairs. And if I start looking back how Estonia became a poster child for austerity, then I have to say that if you go to a restaurant, the kitchen might not be as pretty as the final meal that you are served in a, in a very nice atmosphere. And so it was with uh, Estonia. First of all, 
and actually most of it applies also to the other Baltic states. First of all, we had a very nice but very unhealthy uh, housing boom. Uh, Double-digit uh, GDP growth, foreign money flowing in and going mostly into housing. And uh, tax revenues were increasing and everything was looking sort of uh, perfect. The living standard was increasing even if it was rather unhealthy and uh, majority of the growth was directly linked to or could be directly linked to the foreign money flowing in. And that actually created the situation where economists, uh, including my humble self, uh, started looking uh, on the global trends on, at 2007 and seeing that uh, global liquidity is contracting and the real estate market is becoming a victim step by step of the situation globally. And this, of course, led us to a conclusion that as the Estonian economy was so prominently driven by housing, real estate, and foreign money flowing in, that that cannot actually uh, go on for very long. So we had a hunch that 2008 is not going to be as good. And this hunch was, uh, in a very polite manner, forwarded also to our government. And the trouble is that they didn't quite believe us, which means that if we start talking about austerity on cutting the budgets, then we have to say that the level of which the budget uh, was cut was already a little bit too much. It was bloated. It was a result of a real estate boom and general feeling that everything was, was going fine which, of course, does not uh, undermine the concept that there indeed actually was uh, something we can call austerity or we can call budget cuts. And we can clearly say that even if Estonia is a small country and as mentioned that one, uh, in, a, in, in the first uh, speech of the keynote speaker, Mr. Joffe, that it's very hard to take example from uh, small countries with... Uh, uh, with, with Protestant religion, religion, blonde hair and blue eyes, then still uh, one point that was made very clearly was uh, that the state does not have to be expanding all the time. So indeed, when the crisis was at hand, the measures were really draconian. Spending was cut, though to the levels where they would have been maybe if the budget wouldn't have been bloated, but it uh, still was cut, and this actually helped to uh, restore confidence in the Estonian economy. Now, maybe the question is that austerity might also have been a necessity, because uh, even if we talk about uh, debt-to-GDP levels in... Uh, low sing single-digit percentages, then we have to say that, well, at the hardest of times, which was probably the spring of 2009, well, we wouldn't have any access to markets for lending anyway. Uh, the only solution where to get money would have probably been uh, International Monetary Fund, which was also the case with uh, 
Latvia, which actually proves a little bit my uh, uh, point regarding uh, the kitchen being a little bit uh, messier than the actual restaurant, or if, if, especially if we look at uh, look in the hindsight. And uh, but at the same time, I would say that for my personal experience and, and for a person who is coming from, from the private sector, I would say that this internal devaluation that meant basically real uh, wages all over the politics uh, coming down up to 15% was the more important part of the austerity. Now, this is, of course, something which uh, seems especially strange to Western Europe. Western Europe, as far as I know, hasn't seen uh, going down in living standards uh, since uh, the, 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 the Second World War. So it has been constant uptrend in living standards. Yes, maybe last 30 years, mostly financed by adding on debt, but, but still. But Estonia managed to do it, to do the internal devaluation. Uh, there were not the instances where salaries were cut, cut 20% were not rare at all. Uh, there were situations where a boss gathered all his employees and said that now we have two choices. Either 20% of you will go or we cut salaries 20, 20% including my own. So, of course, uh, the choice was made in favor of cutting the salaries. Now, this is something which wouldn't be very imaginable in countries where uh, trade unions have a very strong position. You couldn't, uh, you, you might have similar stories or with st similar problems from, for example, Finland, but you couldn't really execute that. And this one issue which uh, made us a poster boy of austerity, if we can say so, uh, is due to historical reasons. Because uh, I would say that still, today, uh, in Estonia and all the other Baltic states, there hasn't been a time in history where the general standard of living would have been that high as it is now. So, okay, maybe except 2007, if we, com if we compare to the, the, to the present day. But people still have experiences of the Soviet era where things were considerably tougher. So 20% salary cut, which, something, which is something you would, if you would tell to a Frenchman, would get very, very angry probably, was rather, uh, rather commonplace. And the salary cuts were up to 40% even. So, and what did, what did that do? That changed the structure of the economy. Before that, if the growth had become from the housing boom, the competitiveness was restored with the salary cuts. And that basically meant that, one of my favorite examples is that if a construction worker who didn't basically do nothing at a construction was smoking and standing by his shovel and getting 1,000 euros net for that, became unemployed, and then went to work for an exporting company probably owned by Swedes or Finns, 
and got 40% less. That was the actual structural change that the crisis uh, uh, bought. And that was the change of, of the structure of the economy. It became, during the crisis, with, of course, a little bit help from the government, a little bit help of the government, from the government, uh, an economy which was growing due to capital flowing in to an economy which was growing due to export growth. And uh, the export growth, on the other hand, was one, if we we go a little bit forward, then I would say that this was due to a favorable business environment. If we look at what what has been going on uh, recently, where did the exporting companies came from? They came from basically Finland and Sweden. And that is because Estonia is a place where business, it's easy to do business. We cannot compare ourselves to Ireland because in Ireland it's, it's rather simple. But yes, we can compare ourselves in that sense to, to Germany. So basically, uh, if I start my conclusion, then what I want to say is that yes, austerity was... Uh, I would say, the most dominating word during the crisis. But it was done in both private sector, public sector. It proved that it could be done also, and the state does not have to expand all the time. Um, The lesson from it was that it was done rapidly. It was done rapidly, and uh, it wasn't stretched. If, If an issue was seen, it was done uh, in a very, very strict and, and, and big manner even. Another lesson is that it was done honestly, like Mr. Parts uh, mentioned. Uh, if you are honest, even with the electorate telling them negative news, you're going to have a much better uh, sort of uh, response than when you stru- try to stretch something, something or paint the picture a little bit more beautiful. And the third lesson, of course, is that uh, there is no actual austerity without structural reform. And Mr. Parts described the structural reforms to you. Yes, you get headlines that schools are being closed down, hospitals are being closed down, and that's the truth. But if you cannot afford them, and if you have them as as a heritage from the Soviet era, era, when you have have them like, too much already to begin with. Then so, to conclude, I would say that perhaps the real hero here in all the Baltic countries wasn't uh, the uh, public sector with their cuts and austerity. It was the private sector who was willing to accept the internal uh, devaluation. The public sector, even if not the hero, was a very good sidekick doing their part in a very, very uh, sort of strict and technocratic and honest manner, especially if you put it on the backdrop of what, uh, how things are usually done in Europe. And if we can talk about the hero, which was the, um, was, was the private sector, the sidekick, uh, which was the public sector, then everything happened in a backdrop of strong fiscal discipline, and I would say that this might have been the biggest piece of luck that Estonians 
have uh, had during the last 20 years that we have always had strong fiscal discipline. Yes, you might criticize it. Yes, it might not be strong enough in certain cases. But if you compare it to European welfare states, then it's still fiscal discipline, and it has worked. So basically what I would, how I would conclude is that honesty, doing as much as you can do at once, there is no austerity without structural reform, and fiscal discipline actually works. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Our next speaker uh, will talk about uh, Germany. He's uh, Mark Hallerberg. He teaches public management and political economy at the Hurdy School of Governance. He's the author, co-author, and co-editor of different books on the subject. He has published uh, 25 articles and book chapters on fiscal governance, tax competition, exchange rate, choice, and European politics. He has held academic positions at Emory University, the University of Pittsburgh, and the Georgia Institute of Technology. He has done consulting work with the Dutch Ministry of Finance, the European Central Bank, International Monetary Fund, the OECD, and the World Bank. Please help me welcome Mr. Mark Hallerberg. Well, thank you, Juan Carlos. I have three words of introduction before I dive into my presentation. One is to thank Mike Tanner for inviting me to come here and indeed the entire Cato staff. This has been a terrific conference, and I've had to organize some of these myself. I can tell you things run very smoothly here, so I don't see him out here. But thank you very much for pulling this all together. A uh, second word of introduction is just if you haven't heard of my university, the Heidi School of Governance, we are one of the very few private universities in Germany, which it normally has public universities. We're about to hit our 10th year. We have a master's of public policy. We like American students. We have joint degrees with uh, Columbia, Georgetown, and Syracuse, and we'd love to see more Americans and have more American contacts. So if you want to hear more about my school, come see me after the talk. The final thing is just to say something about, the, I think, how my presentation fits in the context of others. And I was told I had all but 15 minutes to talk about the German welfare state, which isn't a lot of time. And I chose to focus more on micro rather than macro reforms. And after seeing the presentations today, I'm delighted I did that, because we heard lots of things about austerity, uh, properly so, about tax versus expenditure mixes, about where things are spent. And I'm going to focus a bit more about some of the more micro-level reforms. How do you reform the state? How do you reform the welfare state? And what sorts of things seem to work? And what sorts of challenges remain? So again, my talk in the context of what we've talked about already here is really thinking at the micro level rather than at the macro level. I'd like to do a few things. One is I'd like to set the scene. It seems almost bizarre to keep hearing about how strong Germany is and how well Germany is doing. If you go back a decade, it was the sick man of Europe. Nothing seemed to work. It was, I think, 26 out of 27 in growth. Only the Italians were worse. You may know that only, I think, Zimbabwe is worse than Italy if you look at some of these world rankings. So to be down there with Italy was embarrassing and problematic. Uh, and in a time where there wasn't a great world economic crisis, Germany was simply sick. And there's a question of, well, what did Germany do? Now, to get to Josef Jaffa's comments this morning, it's a little difficult sometimes to tease out causation. Uh, 
Maybe a lot of this is more correlation, but the Germans, I think, took some earnest steps uh, and some fairly successful steps to reform their welfare state. I'll also say a few words about what Germany has done during the crisis. Uh, there have been some innovations that you may like or not. And finally, and this is also something that's been addressed now across several panels, is to think about the big challenge in the future, which is what to do with the welfare state in the midst of demographic trends. And in particular, Germans don't have kids, and they're getting very old. So you think in that context, what do you do? Well, just a few comparative slides. When I say Germany did not grow quickly, this is a comparison of Germany and the US in the early 2000s. You can see, except for 2001, that Germany was behind the US. There was an election in 2002 where the chancellor at the time, Gerhard Schroeder, said, well, things aren't going well, but there are two reasons. One is 9-11, and one is we had big floods. And because there are big floods in, in East Germany, you can't blame me. It has nothing to do with my policies. Oh, I just had these external shocks. I just had bad luck. And he managed to win that election. But you look at that growth rate in 2003, and you see, well, maybe it wasn't so much floods. Okay, and there are other places that are growing. And uh, he, he, and there's, I should say, it's not just the Social Democrats. There emerged, I think this is important, there emerged a consensus that there had to be reform. Okay, you had to do something. There was something wrong domestically. If you look at unemployment, the trend always goes the same way. Germany's that green, and you'll see that it's always ticking upward to almost 10% in 2004. It's higher than the EU average starting in 2001, so relative to its European competitors or allies, however you want to perceive that, there is a sense that we're going in the wrong direction. And relative, of course, to the United States, unemployment was much higher. So it's not just that growth is low, it's that unemployment is high. Finally, and this is another thing that is a change, if you're used to hearing about fiscal discipline in Germany, well, if you talk to a lot of Germans, specifically at the finance ministry, they're always worried about we're not disciplined enough. And you might say it's because the Germans, culturally, they believe in discipline. Well, if you look at the record, the Germans weren't doing particularly well in the early 2000s. As was mentioned this morning, it was both France and Germany that originally broke the Maastricht Treaty, I would call them guidelines. Uh, we can talk about how legal these things were, but you weren't supposed to have a budget deficit above 3% of GDP. Of course, the Germans and the French broke this uh, in 2003. And the, again, the trend was that this was a country that even when things weren't so terrible, and they weren't good, but that the deficit and debts were building up. So what did they do? Well, I, again, I don't know how much time, but there's a commission that was formed. It's another thing if you think about how do you enact reforms. Commission was known as the, the Hartz Commission, named after Mr. Hartz. And it's had a series of reforms from 2003 and 2005. I should say there are four such reforms. I'm going to focus on the ones that are specifically welfare state-focused and social welfare in the following slides. But one other thing to point out about this is to get some of these things passed, you had to pass it through the upper house, which was usually controlled by the political opposition. And so in the American context, you talk about bipartisanship. There are more than two parties in Germany. But the idea is that the major parties agreed to push something through. Okay? If you look at the details, now some of this is going to still sound pretty generous compared to some things you get in other countries. But the usual way it worked is up to a certain cap, you get some percentage of your last income. Okay? You don't just get a flat amount 
in terms of subsidy. Well, the amount of time that that was, it used to be two years long. There wasn't much incentive to go back to work. This was, of course, changed from two years to one, so cut in half. Uh, the payments went down after that. And they went down to pretty draconian level, I would argue. Okay, 345 euros after that initial one year. So it's not, well, you get eased off, but you don't get eased off much. No, there's a fairly big drop. If you don't accept the job the government gives you, you get a, a further cut of 30% of what it is that you are getting. And there were, although these things were not all that widely used, but there were the idea that there was the idea that the state could have you clean up parks or do other things at one year an hour that you would decide weren't so enjoyable and maybe you should get back to work. There was another thing that if you had savings built up or you had house or these other sorts of things, well, you should be drawing on them. Why should the state be paying for you? Okay, you've got other things to access. Now, again, compared to some other countries, you might say these aren't big reforms, but considering how the German system was set up, these are true cuts. Okay, these are not just, we're going to slowly change the system. These were, were significant cuts and changes in the way the system worked. If you look at Social Security, and this is the other topic that comes up, well, traditionally it's a, it's a pay-go system. You, know, you pay out of current revenue for whatever the benefits are. But there have been some interesting reforms. There has been a so-called private pillar added to the public pillar. It's voluntary, but you're encouraged to pay into the public, into the private system. Uh, I have one of these where my uh, insurance agent, you know, manages my money that's in that private thing that I can't touch until I retire. Uh, there's an annual adjustment formula to pension benefits. And one thing that I don't think has been stressed enough, partly because it's not so popular, but that your pension benefits... Uh, the way that you adjust those are linked to the number of contributors and the number of recipients. So if you have more people getting benefits than you expect, you get less money. Okay, so there is some sort of control in terms of how this is set up. The retirement age was increased from 65, and it will be increased to 67 by 2029. Again, not something you would think would be ter terribly popular with voters, but yet nonetheless something that passed. I should say an academic, I should be careful in trumpeting all these things. I mean, Germans don't tend to retire at the official retirement age. There are all sorts of ways to retire early. And uh, those haven't gone away. So it's not that everybody's quitting at 67. Uh, it may be more like 61, 62 instead of 59 like before. But nonetheless, there were some, some changes and some things that are bandied about today, uh, both in this country and in others. And this past week, there was something that's known as the Aging Summit, where they had a big meeting in Berlin to talk about what sorts of changes should come as we move forward. Something else that's discussed during the crisis, and I don't know how much of this you've heard in the U.S., but this idea of what's, what's known in German as a Kurzarbeit program. And the idea here is, well, you've got a crisis. It turns out that world trade dropped by something like 40%, I think is the IMF figure for 2009, and you're a big trading economy. Now, you could lay off a bunch of people. They go on unemployment. They disappear. And with the German solution, that's not quite a solution, but one of the German programs that was there was, well, now what we're going to do is instead of you getting paid retirement for a short period of time, we'll pay your salary, but a portion of it. We're not going to pay the amount, the full amount. You're not going to work 40 hours. You might work 30 hours. And your employer is going to keep you on. And the idea there is you don't lose your skill set. You don't disappear into the mass of the unemployed. 
uh, in terms of how things get set. And in the German case, of course, trade then picked up. You may know there are more BMWs sold today in China than in the United States. And so the export market then built up again, and you had this short-term program that pushed things on. Now, I, I don't advocate this for lots of other countries. This could, of course, be simply a way to have the government pay for the salaries of people in the, in the private sector. And you can see many problems that could arise here. But there at least seemed to be some things that worked well in the German case. The other thing to mention, and this is in context of your fiscal cliff, uh, if you think about what sorts of things happen on the fiscal side, rather than this morning, again, we talked a bit about tax and expenditure mixes. What the Germans have done is introduce something that's called a debt break, which is modeled on the German model, the so-called Schuldenbremse. And the idea is it's a cyclically adjusted target. So at the federal level, you should have deficits no larger than 0.35% of GDP. At the, the state level, they should be balanced. But it depends on how the economy goes. And I should say a lot of politicians still don't understand this. When it, when the economy is stronger than expected, you hear discussions of, oh, well, we have extra tax revenue. Why don't we spend it? But the way the rule works is it adjusts depending on where you are in the cycle. So if you're doing well, you have to run surpluses. But again, if you're doing poorly, you're allowed to run larger deficits than that 0.35%. Okay? Now, my main complaint, again, as the academic of this, is that there is a so-called escape clause, which if you have a natural catastrophe or you have an unusual emergency situation. That's the translation of that in German. You can say, oh, well, we're going to suspend this. And my worry about this always is it takes an absolute majority of parliament. You may keep in mind that parliament passes the budget to decide to suspend this law. And so if you read uh, the press outside of Germany, you hear about how terrible and tough and austere this German rule is. And I should urge, I guess, a word of caution to say it's there, but it hasn't yet been tested. Uh, there's a question of whether or not they will, the government will be pulling this if they get in some difficulty. Nonetheless, it is the inspiration for the so-called fiscal compact that 25 of 27 European Union member states have signed. And they are in the process right now of implementing some version of this in all member states. And if you're interested in questions and answers, it's an interesting research agenda to see to what extent do they copy the Germans, to what extent do they do something different, to what extent do they promise to do something, but they haven't done anything at all? But these are, again, things that, I guess, lessons that have come from the German scene that are now being seen at the European level. If we think about challenges, I intentionally chose for these pictures, not slides I designed, but slides the Germans designed, just to give you a sense of what they see. What you see on the left is, if you look 2010, 2011, 2012, more or less a stable labor market in terms of the number of people between the ages of 20 and 64, about a little more than 49 million, but you see how that drops off. Okay, and it's both because people are leaving, because they're retiring, and because there are fewer and fewer kids. And then you have the problem that people who could have kids, there are just fewer people of those age who could have the kids. <coughs> okay, and you get in a situation where you have declining numbers of people who have to be financed in some way, especially uh, if, if you're older. That picture on the right says, well, if you have how many people enter and exit the labor market, Ireland is the one that's on the top. That means that if you have 100 people leave the labor market, you have 120 people enter the labor market. Uh, and this is looking at 2020. So Ireland is going to be gaining people. It doesn't have that problem. If you look at Germany at the bottom, that tells you that for every 
100 people who leave the labor market, 23 people will be entering the labor market. That's bad, okay? If you think about who's going to pay for the benefits. Now, there are other things that might be good about that. But again, I'm thinking in terms of the economic effects and what this means for the welfare state. Because again, they, although they've moved Social Security along and these sorts of pensions along, it still is a pay-go system plus. And there's some questions for how sustainable will this all be in the future. Well, my final slide thinks is simply to point out, yes, there have been some reforms. Uh, they include a constitutional debt break. And I should say it's in the Constitution. It's not just something that was passed in a law. Germany's doing comparatively well, especially if you compare it to a decade ago, but fairly low unemployment. Its budget is essentially imbalanced today. Uh, this gets to a bit of the discussion that came up this morning, where I think I would differ with more in tone than anything else with some of the speakers. You do see, I mean, Germany's not alone. There are some developed welfare states that have done relatively fine. But as mentioned this morning, many of them did have these types of reforms. Okay, and you, if you're living in a democracy, you may have a preference indeed for a somewhat larger state than some other places. But the question is, how efficient is the system? And I think if I compare this with Spain and with Ireland and some of the other countries, I think what they experienced in the 2000s that was very well demonstrated in the graphs we saw this morning is a sense of, well, we're going to pay for all these new benefits because we got all this new money. Okay, running a budget balance in Ireland, well, I'm, we're growing at 8 or 9 or 10%. So budget balance means I get all this cash. And I get to have all these new benefits. And then the cash dries up, and what do you do? Okay, when you get in situations like that, you're in trouble. I think it's also California, by the way. If you think in terms of American states, places that had these real estate booms, had all this money. They had balanced budget requirements, which essentially meant they just kept spending the money. And then at some point, they dried up. Okay, what sorts of adjustments do you have? And I think if you think about how to classify these countries and what sorts of reforms you have, you may say that some of these very developed countries, while they have lessons, they are in a different boat, perhaps, than countries like Spain and Ireland that have these sorts of California-like effects. And the question there is, what sorts of cuts can you have to move forward? Well, thank you. Our next speaker is our favorite Canadian scholar here at Cato, uh, Chris Edwards. He's the director of DAC Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and editor of downsizinggovernment.org. He's a top expert on federal and state and budget issues. Before joining Cato, Cato, Chris was a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee, a manager with Coopers, Coopers, and an economist with the Tax Foundation. His articles on tax and budget policies have appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and other major newspapers. He's the author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author with Dan Mitchell of The Global Tax Revolution. He holds a BA and an MA in economics, and he was a member of the Fiscal Future Commission. <coughs> He's going to talk to us about our fiscally responsible neighbor to the north, Canada. Chris? Thank you, Juan Carlos, and uh, thank you very much to Mike Tanner and uh, the whole Cato staff who put on uh, today's uh, conference. It's obviously a crucially important uh, topic for the United States going ahead. I'm going to talk about the Canadian reforms of the 1990s and the 2000s, and this is a good news story. Um, Canada is an economy and a culture that is much like the United States, and uh, the two countries share a lot of uh, 
uh, history, so I think that Canadian reforms are very much applicable to uh, the problems the United States uh, faces today. So I'm going to run through about 10 slides basically on uh, Canada's reforms, and uh, I'll go pretty quickly. This is sort of Canada's fiscal history uh, over 150 years, basically summarized down to six bullet points. Prior to the 1960s, Canada was a relatively small government country. Up until the mid-60s, Canada and the United States spending and taxing was about the same share of GDP uh, as in the United States. And then from the 60s to the 80s, uh, Canada had uh, rapidly rising government spending, high inflation through the 70s, uh, and the federal government nationalized a number of major businesses. Things started changing in the 1980s. The central bank moved to inflation targeting, uh, which has been extremely successful. Inflation was cut dramatically and has remained low for the last couple decades. The U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement in 1988 uh, was a crucial step for the country, uh, not just uh, because of the particular provisions of the reform, but I think it really changed the mindset of Canadians. They became, it decisively moved Canada towards a more open, uh, uh, globalized, uh, internationalist uh, kind of uh, uh, view of the uh, view of the economy. Canada started some modest tax rates in the 1980s and also some privatization. In the 1990s, Canada, both the federal and provincial government, governments made some pretty dramatic spending cuts. Uh, they started in 1998 a series of 11, 11 years of balanced budgets at the federal level. There was more privatization. Canada even privatized its air traffic control system uh, in 1996. The 2000s, uh, by the, the time the 2000s came along, the federal government was experiencing large surpluses and they started cutting spending, both individual and corporate tax cuts. Uh, most recently, there has been a bit of backsliding on spending uh, restraint and the federal government and some, some of the provinces have run deficits. But nonetheless, uh, the reforms uh, put in place the last couple decades are still paying uh, dividends uh, to Canada. So I'm going to run through a few uh, charts. Uh, next, this is total government spending, federal, provincial, local, uh, as a share of GDP. We've got Canada here, the red line, uh, United States, and uh, OECD. You go back to the early 1990s, Canadian government spending was over 50% of GDP, uh, and, the, and the country was running into real trouble. Uh, interest rates on government bond debt were, were very high, deficits were huge, and debt was exploding. Canada needed to make some some changes. Uh, and Canada did make change, both the federal government and provincial governments started cutting in the 1990s. Today, Canadian government spending is down to 41% of GDP. Relative to the OECD, it is now a smaller government country and really has a government about the same size as uh, in the United States today. This is uh, an even more dramatic chart. This just shows federal government spending Canada and the United States. Uh, Canada, the red line, United States, the blue line. If you go back to the, the left-hand side of the chart, in the 1960s, Canada had a smaller federal government than the United States, but in both countries from the 60s to the 80s were years of uh, growing government. Government soared in size from the 60s to the 80s and then sort of plateaued uh, and peaked. Uh, United States and Canada both started uh, cutting spending uh, during the 1990s, but can Canada continued to cut and has kept its uh, federal government at that lower level. United States reversed itself uh, after President Clinton left office and President Bush and now uh, President Obama have pushed up the uh, federal budget uh, substantially. Uh, these, these cuts, as I said, allowed uh, Canada to balance its federal budget 11 years in a row and, and government debt plunged in Canada. Uh, 
one interesting thing about Canada that's very much relevant to the United States is the Canadian story uh, in this chart uh, decisively refutes the Keynesian idea that spending uh, cuts are bad for economic growth. In the early 1990s, Canada suffered a very severe recession, and when Canada started cutting under the new Liberal government, 1994-95, the unemployment rate was still up around 9 or 10 percent. But the, the Canadian uh, Finance Ministry at the time and the Canadian Finance Minister, uh, they were not Keynesians. Uh, they wanted to cut. They knew they had to cut. Uh, financial markets were telling them they had to cut, and so they cut, and they cut uh, pretty dramatically, and the Canadian economy boomed. It boomed for 16, uh, 15 or 16 years, right up until the recent recession uh, in 2008. Here's a little more detail on the Canadian federal uh, spending cuts. So federal, the federal spending was cut from 23% in 1993 to 16%. Uh, today, it's actually less than uh, 16% uh, today. And the current, uh, the current government projects that it'll continue sort of falling uh, a little bit in coming years. So the main reform is that in two years, 1996-97, uh, total program spending, in other words, total spending other than interest, was cut 10%. So that'd be like United States uh, Congress cutting spending by $360 billion in just two years. And then, so spending was cut 10%, and then it was essentially held at the lower level for another three years. And that was enough to really make a dramatic uh, change uh, to the Canadian fiscal outlet, uh, outlook. So what was cut? Well, just about everything was cut except the Canadian national health care system, which is still a problem. Defense was cut. The federal workforce was cut dramatically. Farm subsidies. Uh, unemployment insurance was cut pretty dramatically, uh, and the cuts to unemployment insurance and also uh, welfare reforms in Canada were like a, a, uh, a, uh, a microeconomic reform. They induced a lot more Canadians to enter the labor market, uh, and the participation uh, rose. And so, uh, so some of these cuts, you know, not only had good macro effects, they had good micro effects as well. Transportation was cut, business subsidies, foreign aid. And perhaps most importantly, aid to provinces and local governments was cut pretty substantially. Uh, 1997, Canada also uh, converted its pay-as-you-go social security system to a partly pre-funded system, which is now solvent for the next uh, 75 years. This is my favorite uh, chart here. Uh, uh, this is what I love about Canada's fiscal structure. Canada has become, always has been, but has even uh, more so recently become a very decentralized uh, federation. Uh, you know, Canada is now basically the decentralized federation that the American founders uh, established in the U.S. Constitution, but the United States has now uh, kind of discarded. Uh, this shows total government spending in Canada and the United States. The United States on the left, the United States federal government spending is 71% of total government spending. In Canada, federal government spending is just 38% of total government spending. This is a remarkable uh, difference. Canada, for example, does not have a federal department of education at all. Education is purely a provincial and local uh, matter. The, the reforms in the 1990s uh, strengthened uh, this, uh, the decentralization in Canada to an extent uh, one, one thing the reforms in the 1990s did is it, it, uh, it took all the, the federal aid to lower levels of governments and consolidated it, it into just three block grants. In the United States, uh, there are a thousand, over a thousand different federal aid to state and local government programs. Each one of those programs is complex. It has regula they have lots of regulations attached to them. 
So United States has got a thousand of these uh, uh, programs that uh, federal aid to lower levels of government. Canada now just has uh, three, and Canadian uh, federal spending to lower levels of government is lower than the similar uh, federal spending in the United States. So decentralization, in my view, has been a huge benefit to Canada. The provinces can go in different directions. Some of the provinces are now run by left-of-center socialist governments, uh, others by more free market governments. And that's great. They very much, uh, the provinces compete with each other on taxes and, and, uh, and spending restraint, and this has been usually, uh, usually beneficial. Let me jump over to, uh, to taxes uh, uh, quickly, then I'll hand over the, the podium to, uh, to Dan Mitchell. Uh, tax cuts have been a big part of the Canadian story. Uh, there have been personal income tax cuts, but the most dramatic uh, story is on the corporate tax side. Canada's gone through uh, three, three rounds of substantial corporate tax cuts. Uh, the first round was in the late 1980s. Uh, the United States uh, substantially cut its corporate income tax back in 1986. Canada immediately realized a competitive threat and, and chopped its federal corporate tax rate from 38% down to 29%. And then in 2000, under a liberal government uh, that was experiencing uh, uh, substantial surpluses from the spending restraint, they decided to use some of these surpluses and they chopped the federal corporate uh, income tax from 29% to 22%. And then a new government came into power in 2006, 2007 that further cut uh, the, the Canadian uh, federal corporate tax rate down to just 15%. Provincial corporate tax rates have been cut uh, as well, but uh, the, the Canadian corporate tax cuts have been really uh, have been really remarkable, and again, they've been they've been bipartisan, supported by both liberal and conservative parties. Uh, it is true that Canada has a VAT, uh, something that that uh, us at Cato were not not big fans of. Uh, the Canadian VAT was added back in 1991. Its current rate is five percent. But the VAT in Canada has been sort of good news, bad news. The good news has been that the VAT, when it was introduced, was a revenue neutral replacement for an even worse tax. Canada used to have a 13% uh, tax on manufacturers, which was a hidden tax uh, that was really damaging to the country's competitiveness and exports. And they replaced that with a much more visible uh, goods and services tax, or VAT, which sort of in operation, it's like a retail sales tax. Uh, the, the Canadian VAT is visible to, uh, visible to citizens and voters, which has been a good thing. And in recent years, the Canadian uh, federal VAT has been harmonized with state, with provincial retail sales taxes. And the effect of this has been to, re to reduce the uh, tax burden on investment. So in a lot of ways, the, the Canadian uh, VAT was, was a, a good story for Canada in terms of competitiveness. The bad news is, is that in the future, the, the relatively low rate on the Canadian uh, VAT of 5%, you know, it could, be, it could be a future money machine for uh, if the federal government is taken over by left of center uh, government. So, so that's something we will, have to, uh, we will have to see. The final chart I will show you is, uh, uh, explores the Canadian corporate tax cut a little bit more. Uh, and this uh, is also directly applicable to uh, United States. So the red line shows you the Canadian federal corporate tax rate, which in the 1980s uh, was up at 38%. Uh, it was slashed in the 1990s, and recently, as I mentioned, the, the corporate tax has gone all the way down to 15%. Uh, the blue line shows you corporate tax revenues as a share of GDP. Slashing the corporate tax rate from 38 to 15% has not visibly reduced corporate tax revenues in Canada. The only dip in the line you see there is because of the sharp recession in the early 1990s. Uh, this is remarkable. Canada collects as much with a 15% rate as it used to at a 38% rate. 
And indeed, the, the uh, Canada collects more now in federal corporate tax revenue as a share of GDP than the United States does with a 35% corporate rate. Uh, this is remarkable. Uh, two things have happened. There's been a giant dynamic response to the Canadian corporate tax cuts. Uh, multinationals are reporting a lot more uh, uh, profits in Canada because of the lower uh, tax rate. And there's been a good real investment response uh, in Canada. The Canadian economy has done well because corporations are investing and the government wins, the private sector wins, corporate tax rate cuts uh, are win-win all around. And I will, uh, I will close, on that, uh, close on that chart. And uh, just to sort of a summarize, the Canadian reforms have been very impressive. Uh, a, lot of their, uh, a lot of the reforms will, be long, will create long-lasting benefits like the corporate tax rate cut like the, uh, the, the funding of the social security system. There has been some backsliding in recent years. The uh, United States dragged Canada into a recession in 2008, 2009, and the Canadians uh, stupidly uh, uh, put in a stimulus package, sort of a, a copy of the American legislation. Uh, however, the Canadian government now in their forecast is showing spending uh, falling again. Uh, uh, some other bad news is some of the provinces uh, are run by left of center governments and they have been pretty profligate. But nonetheless, because of Canada's decentralized federation, the provinces do feel competitive pressure to, uh, to uh, make reforms uh, like their neighboring provinces has. Canada still has a nationalized healthcare system, of course, as well. But uh, these reforms over the last couple decades have been hugely beneficial. Uh, Canadian incomes have been rising, wealth has been rising, the unemployment rate is lower than the United States, uh, the Canadian dollar is back up at a parity with the American dollar. So the Canadian reforms have been a big success. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. One thing that is uh, actually worth noting is that Canada has overtaken the United States in, in economic freedom and the annual index we publish along with the Fraser Institute of Canada every year. Uh, the next speaker is another colleague of mine, is Daniel Mitchell. He's a tax expert on tax reform and supply side tax policy. He's a strong advocate of the flag tax and international competition. Prior to joining Cato, he was a senior fellow with the Heritage Foundation and an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee. His articles can be found in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Investors Day, Business Daily, and the Washington Times. He's a frequent guest on radio and television and a popular speaker on the lecture, lecture circuit. We always have him down there in South, in South America and Central America speaking about these issues. Mitchell holds a bachelor's and master's degree in economics from the University of Georgia, as you can see by his type. And he has a PhD in economics from George Mason University. So help me welcome Dan Mitchell. Thank you, Juan Carlos. You don't know how rough it is sitting next to Chris Edwards, bragging about Canada every day, stopping my office. Dan, hey, hey, look what we've done. And I can't say anything good about America. Uh, but I can say some good things about other countries, so that's what I'm going to do in my uh, presentation here, uh, talk about a few uh, bits of good news. First, though, I want to get one thing clear. We don't have a deficit and debt crisis. We have a spending crisis around the world. Deficits and debt are just symptoms of governments that are too big and spending too much money. If you simply replace debt finance spending with tax finance spending, well, maybe you're not going to have exactly the same kind of problem, but you're still going to have a country with a weak, anemic economy because too many resources are being consumed uh, by the uh, public sector. Uh, so 
looking at what we have around the world, I think we have sort of a short-term and a long-term problem. The short-term problem, uh, in some sense, is related to the financial crisis, obviously related to the recession. Uh, and I think it ties into what some of the other speakers have said. Governments have a tendency. When times are good, they spend all the revenue. I mean, this, you, know, you mentioned California. Exactly. You meant, uh, Ireland is another story. When they were booming, uh, some of that, of course, a fake boom because of property values and housing prices. But when governments, when an economy is booming and revenues are flowing into a government, they can't resist spending the money. And then when a downturn hits, revenues dry up. All of a sudden, it's, it's like uh, you ever see the old cartoons with the, the coyote chasing the roadrunner? He runs out over a cliff, and all of a sudden, like he looks down and then he falls. Well, that's sort of like what government spending does in these countries. They keep spending even after the revenue stop, then they suddenly realize that they're in trouble. But there's also the long-term problem, and that's the demographic one that other speakers have talked about. So I don't really need to get too much into that. Uh, but here's a chart from a Bank for International Settlements uh, paper that looks at the demographic trends, uh, basically the old age population ratio to working age population in US, Japan, UK, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and Greece. We're all in the same boat. We're all in exactly the same boat, and politicians in these countries to varying degrees have these tax and transfer entitlement schemes that simply don't work. They're not a good idea, even if you have a traditional population pyramid. But when you're moving more toward a population cylinder instead of a population pyramid, then these systems become very, very troubling. And it's not just a problem with the periphery. The periphery are, you know, you've heard the acronym about the pigs. Uh, that's sort of the periphery in the European Union. But it goes beyond that. It's also in Japan. Uh, the demographic problem exists all around the world. And actually, in many of these countries that, that are healthy today or considered the good countries today, where people are actually, you know, I mean, right now, the U.S. government can, can borrow money at almost 0% interest rates because people want a so-called safe haven. But we're not going to be safe. The U.K. is not going to be safe. Germany is not going to be safe uh, in the long run. And I'm going to show a few charts also from that Bank for International Sediments study uh, from, I think it was July of 2010. Pay attention to the red line. That's government debt as a share of GDP projected out to 2040. Now, I would prefer showing government spending as a share of GDP, but all this BIS study had was charts looking at the symptoms rather than the underlying disease. But recognize that 100% of, of that red line jumping up is because of the welfare state increasing the burden of government spending. Look at France. They're going to go up to 400% of GDP. Where's Greece now? About 150% of GDP? Uh, you know, Spain and Portugal aren't even at 100% of GDP yet. And look at France, 400% of GDP. Germany, you better move out before you get to 2040 because they're going to be up at 300% of GDP. Uh, here's the Netherlands. I always thought the Dutch were very sober, responsible people. Well, not according to this chart right here. And here's Japan. I mean, they're going to explode at some point. It's going to be a very interesting social science experiment. Sort of like take Mad Max, the movie out of Australia, put it in Japan, and we'll, we'll see that coming, uh, uh, be happening before our eyes. Here's the United Kingdom, the, the so-called so Anglo-Saxon free market model. Ah, uh, the UK is, uh, is dead as well. And then, of course, I'm ashamed to say, here's the United States. No wonder Chris always comes by and says, eight, eight? That's a Canadian joke, by the way, if you're not getting it. They're supposed to say <laughs> A all the time. I'm not getting any laughs, so I have to explain that. 
So what should be done? Uh, for those of you who are fans of literature, you may remember from Dickens, the macabre principle, annual income 20 pounds, annual expenditure 19.6, result happiness, annual income 20 pounds, annual expenditure 20 pounds, and six, result misery. I have a different rule. Instead of the macabre principle, I have the fiscal golden rule. The private sector should grow faster than the government. It's all about trend lines. All those charts that I showed you from the Bank for International Settlements, why is that happening? Because over, you know, in the past and into the future, government spending is growing this much and the private sector is growing this much. What's the private sector? That's your tax base. If your tax base is growing by less than government spending, frankly, it doesn't matter how much you increase taxes, sooner or later, you're gonna wind up like Greece. By the way, when I do this right here, this is what's called the Greek PowerPoint slide right here. Uh, I actually took this fiscal golden rule. Uh, my buddy, Art Laffer, he gets to be famous. He has the Laffer curve. I'm trying to create something famous for myself, Mitchell's golden rule, the private sector should grow faster than the government. What happens when you do that? What happens when you hold government spending, nominal dollars or euros or whatever, so that it grows slower than nominal GDP? You get very good results. So that's what I'm going to show with a handful of countries here, uh, because we do have some good reforms. And I'll just skip right to the charts. By the way, countries that did good things in the past can do bad things also. So I'm showing Ireland when they did good things. Uh, they've gone completely off the rails in recent years. But for a four-year period in the late 1980s, they froze government spending. Froze it. Government spending 14.8 billion euros. Government spending four years later, 14.8 billion euros. Some people say, well, wait, they didn't have euros back then. Well, the government adjusted everything and put it in euro terms so we could all understand it better. So what happened because of this four-year period of a spending freeze? Government spending as a share of GDP, that's the blue line, the one that really matters, it fell by about 10 percentage points of GDP. The budget deficit, which was up over 12% of GDP, the symptom of too much spending, that fell all the way down to 2.7% of GDP. A four-year freeze in government spending was all it took to dramatically change their fiscal policy outlook. In Ireland, Slovakia, a, a period between 2000 and 2003, government spending grew 1% a year. What happened to uh, spending and deficits as a share of GDP? Well, again, they both came down. Big achievements, big progress, simply by having a multi-year period of spending restraint where they followed the fiscal golden rule of having government grow slower than the private sector. Again, everything that you read from all the international bureaucracies, everything you hear coming out of EU summits, they're all focusing on deficits and debt. That should tell you they're doing the wrong thing in most cases because they're focusing on symptoms, not diseases. If I go to the doctor and say, doctor, my head hurts. He looks at me, he examines me, he gives me a CAT scan, says, Dan, you have a brain tumor. So here's a couple of aspirin for your headache. I'm not gonna be happy. I want him to take the tumor out. I don't want him to treat the symptoms. What we're seeing in one European country after another, they're raising taxes like a dog chasing its tail or a snake trying to swallow itself. Ultimately, it never works. Uh, let's go on to New Zealand in the 1990s. They had a five-year period, very impressive, five-year period where government was actually smaller at the end of the fifth year than it was at the beginning of the process. What happened to spending and deficits as a share of GDP? Government spending came down by almost 10 percentage points of GDP, and they went from a big budget deficit to a big budget surplus for those who care about uh, uh, that symptom right there. Let's look at Canada. Chris already talks about that uh, a lot, so I'll just show you 
They had a budget deficit roughly uh, equal to what we've had for the last couple of years. Within five years, they had a surplus. So for those of you who are fixated on red ink as opposed to the size of government, cap government spending so it only grows 1% a year for five years, and it's amazing how much progress you'll make. Here's Estonia from 2008 to 2011. Look what happened to government spending. It's smaller in 2011 than it was in 2008. What's happened to the, uh, spending and deficits as a share of GDP? Well, they had a big recession, of course, so that's why you get this kink in the line, but the trend is for spending and deficits as a share of GDP to come down. Why? Because they're actually dealing with the problem of government that is too big. What about tax revenue in these countries? Some of them had tax increases. I think that's unfortunate. Uh, but they, by and large, avoided the worst kinds of tax increases. In other words, they weren't doing the class warfare stuff of increasing top tax rates on personal or corporate income. Uh, the clear focus of policy was to restrain government spending. And actually, on average, these countries reduced the tax burden as a share of GDP. Ireland dramatically, New Zealand and Slovakia slightly less so. You see that the tax burden during these periods I had on the screen did slightly increase in Canada. Estonia is the example of the country that actually had the biggest tax increase, but again, it wasn't the worst kinds of tax increases. They kept their flat tax, uh, they kept the rate low, uh, and so even though they were doing the wrong thing, I think, and that might have contributed to the fact that they had a deeper than necessary downturn, uh, I, the, the main thing is, unlike what happens in Western Europe, the tax increases weren't a substitute for spending uh, restraint. So, uh, well, actually, I've been talking so fast that I'm going to be done before the five-minute sign there, Juan Carlos. Three challenges that we have. We have to correctly identify the problem, and that's government spending. I wouldn't care if a trillion dollars floated down from heaven into the treasuries of all the nations around the world, and they all had budget surpluses. They would still have governments that are too big. That means a misallocation of resources, labor and capital not being used intelligently and wisely, and that means less economic growth and lower living standards. The key goal in fiscal policy, which is why I had that, that golden rule, government should grow slower than the private sector because your number one objective should be to try to reduce the burden of government spending as a share of GDP. And that means you do have to have the private sector grow faster than the government, which is sort of the, just another way of saying the second bullet point here. You have to bend down the cost curve of government spending. Nothing else is going to get you a good result, because as I said before, so long as government is growing faster than the productive sector of the economy, it's the snake trying to swallow itself, it can't work in the long run. It might work for one decade, two decades, three decades, four decades. Some of these European countries, they basically all started their welfare states back in the 1960s. They managed to keep the scam going for a long time. They managed to buy votes with other people's money. But what did Margaret Thatcher tell us? The problem with socialism is that sooner or later you do run out of other people's money, and that's what's finally happening with some of these countries. And you look at the demographics, it's going to happen to all the countries. It's going to happen to the US, Japan, all across Europe. There are a few countries, Switzerland, Australia, even Sweden, uh, that have managed to sort of put their long-term finances in pretty good shape, but most countries are in deep, deep trouble. Uh, and then, of course, probably the most fundamentally important thing we have to do is convince voters that liberty is better than dependency, particularly when dependency means fiscal disaster. I'll close by just adding one thing. Uh, we had a speaker talk about the German debt break. I want to say something about the Swiss debt break. Basically, very much the same principle. Uh, but it's actually not a debt break. It's actually a spending cap. 
because what they do by having this sort of, you know, they, they do let uh, uh, spending, uh, they do understand that revenues will be cyclical with the business cycle. What they do is they put spending on a track where it basically follows with inflation and population. Now, yes, of course, in theory, they can raise taxes to make the uh, to increase the spending cap, but effectively what it has meant since it was put in place in 2002, I think taking effect in 2003, you've had an annual spending cap in Switzerland that pretty much forces that golden rule onto the political system. So at a time over the last several years when the burden of government spending has increased in almost every European country, What's happened in Switzerland? It's dropped by a couple of percentage points as a share of GDP. Switzerland's in better shape because even if they call it a debt break, they put in something that caps the growth of government spending. And I think, is that a model? Yes, it's a model, but it's only a model if you have governments that are actually going to obey it. Uh, now, we did Graham-Rudman in the 1980s. That was indirectly a spending cap, but the moment it sort of bound the politicians, they got rid of it. Uh, and then we put in spending caps as part of the 1990 budget deal, but they were like putting in 55 mile an hour speed limits in a, in a school zone where you want cars to go 15 miles an hour. Uh, the whole goal is that government should grow faster than, uh, should grow slower than the private sector, not spending caps that mean the government automatically grows faster. So we need something that caps the growth of government spending. The Swiss debt break has worked, whether it can be translated into a dysfunctional political system like we have in the US or France or Greece or wherever else, that's an open question. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to the speakers for sticking to their times. We have about uh, five minutes for questions. So if you have any questions, please raise your hand, wait for the microphone, and identify yourself and your affiliation. We have one over here. My name is Matt Melchior. I work with CEI uh, on European economic issues. My question is for Mr. Koppel. Uh, you mentioned that the nominal wage cuts were the essential austerity measure for Estonia. What do you think is the main barrier towards getting this to happen in Western and Southern Europe? Is it the trade unions? Is it some kind of ingrained welfare state within the culture? What do you think is, is the main obstacle to translating the Estonian experience to the rest of Europe? I would say that uh, you're right on both occasions, trade unions and the culture. As I mentioned in my speech, the Western Europe does not have an experience of uh, decreasing uh, standard of living. And I have uh, talked with uh, people from Western Europe about wages being flexible downwards. And this is a concept which is very, very, very hard to accept. So basically, the, the, the trouble there is culture. Any other question here? A question from Mr. Mitchell. Um, the, uh, the argument that, uh, of the ratio of retirees to workers, does the, uh, it seems that it doesn't take productivity into, uh, growth into account. Couldn't you reach? this problem be at least alleviated if you get productivity levels per capita per worker that we cannot imagine right now. That is, with automation or other processes, couldn't we support a greater number of retirees on the active workforce if productivity level rises? 
Uh, I think the answer is yes, and and in Europe you see that. I mean, what does Sweden have? It has a big welfare state, but their tax system is about un as unprogressive as a country's tax system can be, and they're very, very free market in areas outside of fiscal policy. Same thing with Denmark, to a slightly lesser extent, Germany. But if you look at the economic freedom of the world uh, rankings that uh, Juan Carlos was talking about, all for that matter, World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Report, Heritage's Index of Economic Freedom, they all basically show the same thing. You know, you could have a big welfare state, but a very efficient free market economy. You can have a, a small government and a very efficient free market economy like Hong Kong, Singapore. That's obviously what we prefer. But then you can be wrong in all areas. You can have the big welfare state and have a very regulated interventionist economy. That was our, our speaker from Greece you know, when he was sort of painting the nightmare scenario of all the government control. So yes, if you took France or Italy or Spain and you put in a low rate flat tax or at least a flat tax you know, with you got rid of all the double taxation and all the distortions. If you opened up the economy, deregulated the professions, tried to make them more like Sweden instead of like Spaniards, uh, yeah, you could probably get more productivity uh, out of people and therefore be able to afford the welfare state better, which in effect is what the Nordic countries have done. Now, there's a whole separate issue that I'm not qualified to answer. Are there genuine cultural differences that make Swedes Swedes and make Italians Italians? I have no idea. I, I would note, I mean, you've got to, um, to de-index the, the benefits the government's spending from productivity. As you may know, in the United States, the Social Security system is indexed to nominal wages, meaning that when productivity rises, Social Security benefits rise in the future. So, of course, this leads to one of the, you know, the obvious Social Security reforms is let's, let's reduce the indexing of the Social Security system so that in the future, real wages can rise and productivity, private incomes can rise and grow faster than the, than the government benefits. One more question here. Um, my name is Bill Ahern, and I'm a uh, Cato um, supporter. And I wondered if I could get an opinion from each of the panel. What will the uh, euro be worth in dollars in six months? <laughs> <laughs> Let me take note of that. You want to go into that? I'd say 140. And the reason is the fiscal cliff. Not, some, some stuff is happening here, not there. I would say that I don't care too much. My uh, question would be, what uh, can you buy for, for one euro or one dollar in six years? Hmm. That's a better question, I think. I think maybe the Canadian bounty will be a better standard. Yeah, I would, I would, I would put your investment money into the Canadian dollar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or Australian dollars or Swiss francs. Uh, I mean, we have competitive devaluation really going on between the European Central Bank and the Fed. The European Central Bank, I think, has thrown away its independence and become part of the bailout culture in Europe. On the other hand, six months or six, six years from now, we'll probably be on QE19 by then. Uh, so uh, it really is the other currencies that, uh, that are looking better and better. Even so, Latin American currencies look better. Uh, one more? One more question? Over there. Hi, uh, Pat Span, just my represent myself. The uh, that comment of uh, liberty is better than dependence. I wondered if um, any of you would like to take a shot if, after seeing uh, the last few days on Drudge that the woman bragging about her Obama phone. If um, 
what are the likelihood that our voters would actually uh, take liberty over dependence? Well, I remember when Romney got in trouble for the, the surreptitiously taped 47%. Uh, I think he was wrong, but he touched on something important, because it's not the 47% of households who pay no federal income tax, because lots of them pay payroll tax. And it's not the 49% of households that receive some government benefits, even though that's closer, because some of those are people who were forced to be in the social security system. Now they're retired getting social security, but they definitely don't see themselves as part of the moocher class. There is a problem, though. Over time, both those numbers have been rising, and the redistribution mindset is, I think, becoming more prevalent in the U.S. You look at, uh, we had the speaker earlier who was looking at the data, the polling data from this morning about uh, people from different countries wanting spending cuts to greater or lesser degrees. There's also international data showing that Americans right now are much more laissez-faire in the sense that they don't see it as government's responsibility to give you a house, give you a job, give you, a, you know, everything else that the welfare state gives you. But over time, Americans are becoming more like Europeans. And that's why I said that's the big challenge. If we go too far and become like Greece, where a majority of people are either getting retirement benefits, welfare benefits, or, or pretend government jobs, and that becomes a majority of your voting age population, how do you ever reform? which is why I'm very, very pessimistic about some of these Southern European economies. I think they've gone past the tipping point. I think we still have time to fix things. The question is whether we can convince our political class that that's a fight worth having. Well, I think that's it. Uh, thank you very much, and we'll come back in a few minutes for the next panel.